Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Ryan McMahon. Jesse Brown. Ryan, making space for Indigenous stories in journalism. Decolonizing journalism. Indigenizing journalism. Those are three things that eight years ago I had either never heard of or was probably very dismissive and mocking of. Uh, I probably would have dismissed that as like woke jargon. My attitude has changed. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in front of you. So you've made space. I don't know if we're decolonizing journalism, but we can give it a good shot. I, look, the intention was beyond just like having a career, which looked very much in doubt for me. You know, it was just like, I want to tell good stories. I want to find good stories and tell them. You brought a story to my attention with Thunder Bay. And then we collaborated on that story. And those concepts became real to me through that process because the way in which I typically would pursue something or would expect somebody I hired to, to, to pursue something didn't work there. And uh, it's not easy for me to kind of like just seed control, or step back, let things happen in a slower way, let things happen in a different way. 
that I can't micromanage. But that's what that story called for. And it worked out okay. Yeah, I, th I, th I think we did all right. And I think, I don't know, I, I, you know, credit often lands on me uh, for that work. But I will uh, always point back, have always pointed back, and will continue to point back at, at you and the company for taking the risk that no one else took. Because, you know, this story was sitting in front of a lot of people for a long time. And Canada Land took that risk and made the investment and, you know, had the lawyers uh, fighting for us and everything else. So um, as much credit as I get, I think I will always point back to Canada Land as being the company that took the risk. Uh, it's appreciated. And, and uh, you know, I'm excited to see because I know you're, you've been working hard on the screen adaptation. Um, that series lives on for us as kind of a high watermark. And as we've pursued and as it's become clear to everybody that doing journalism in this country right now, first and foremost, we, we need to deal with these issues. We have aspired to kind of, I think, hit the standard that we first got to with that series with you. And, you know, we've crowdfunded around putting money aside to cover Indigenous issues. I think we've done really good work, but it's always there, Thunder Bay. Like, that's the kind of thing we want to do. And we've had longer conversations about how do we, like, make permanently, not on a story-by-story -story basis, and where do we put it? And crucially, who is telling that story? Not just in terms of who do we get on the mic, but who's deciding what story gets told? And I think that what we've learned is that that has to be a similar process of making space and seeding control, but also support, the support of the network, the support of our editorial apparatus and finding that balance. And, and, and so maybe that's the right place to ask you to describe what we're asking people to fund with our Canada Land Back goal. Yeah, well, I think, you know, what people are funding in supporting us with Canada Land Back is um, allowing that process to continue to evolve. Uh, the process of Indigenous people uh, being resourced to tell their stories. And, you know, in in hindsight, in 2018, did we do everything perfectly for the first season of Thunder Bay? No. You know, maybe we spent too long on this and maybe not enough time on that. But I think we learned a hell of a lot. And I think that that process continues to evolve here with the company. And it's why I'm back. Is it's, it's actually really exciting. The way these partnerships can happen with Indigenous journalists and Canada Land and the way even that partnership evolves, I think is one of the most exciting things happening in journalism in Canada right now. And so what are you supporting? You're supporting the evolution of that relationship, uh, not just between yourself and me, because we are going to be working with other journalists, journalists that are hungry and, you know, chomping at the bit to have a chance to tell stories. And I, I can tell you that, uh, you know, I'm already in conversations with people that go, oh, do you know about this? Do you know about that? And, um, you know, we're months away from starting this thing. So, there's already excitement in the indigenous journalism space. There is more story than we know than we know what to do with. And um, with people's support, we'll tell really groundbreaking, complex and nuanced stories that I think will continue to help shape the future of this country. Canada Land Back is a project to dedicate not some new feed, not to do this ad hoc story by story, but that regularly, I think we'd probably start bi-monthly and then move to monthly, our flagship show, the show with the biggest audience that we have, Canada Land, will become Canada Land Back. 
and I'm thrilled that you are on board to host it if we hit our goal and we need to find you a collaborator with whom you'll work on what stories are we going to tell, who are we going to hire to do documentaries, who are we going to hire to, to send on reporting trips. And our job here at the network is to just like support that, buttress it, whatever skills that, that, that could use that we have on hand. And a significant portion of our main show will, going forward, be Canada Land Back if we get there. So canadaland.com slash join is where you go to help us get there. We have had an incredible first week of crowdfunding, but there's a long way to go if you want to see this happening. As always, we have perks and merch. We have ad-free podcasts. It's never been easier. You can now listen to ad-free shows on Spotify, also on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else. If you are already a supporter, the reason why we're still playing you this message is because you are instrumental, crucial. Our existing supporters they spread the word. When they go online and say, here's why I support Canada Land, that is what gets other people to support us. So thanks for your patience, because I know that part of the deal is you don't get ads when you're a supporter, but you do get this message. And also, we want to keep you up to date as to how these goals are going, because I know you're invested in that. Thank you. Support us. Help us get there. CanadaLand.com slash join. Ryan McMahon, journalist, storyteller, comedian. Today on Shortcuts, I asked him for water. He gave me gasoline, the Iqaluit Blues. And how do we fight coronavirus conspiracy theories with freakish, blinking, humanoid robots? That's how. Welcome back to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. That was a mouthful, and you did well. It's nice to be here. This episode is brought to everybody by Beverly McIntosh, Michael Tyndall, Cassandra Schwartz, Joe Paris, Ramsey Galil, Gary Redwood, Mike Ronchka, and Alex. Hi, my name is Alex. I work in marketing and I live in Montreal. I support the Canaland podcast because I believe in the importance of independent journalism. And I really like the work they did on the Thunder Bay and Commons podcast. And yeah, sometimes I like to uh, disagree with Jesse while I do my dishes. So, Ryan, last week I duly noted to our listeners this really shocking story from Iqaluit. The city of Iqaluit has declared a state of emergency and residents are being told not to drink their tap water, even if it's filtered or boiled. Why? Because city staff have found traces of fuel contamination in the treated water supply. A mother and child sourcing water from a river. With no drinkable tap water across Iqaluit, residents like Connie Naudluck are scared. Kev, uh, we just saw the pictures of the water arriving. Where is it going? Well, that's now being distributed to two different sites here in the city of Iqaluit to people that are coming to pick it up. Basically, they're handing out four four-liter bottles of water per household. So I read about that story in the Globe and Mail who had reported it after officials in Nunavut declared a state of emergency. But it turns out that people in Iqaluit knew about this way before the officials declared a state of emergency. And thanks to Nunatsiak News uh, for providing a timeline on this. Locals were complaining about this in Iqaluit uh, on social media as early as October 2nd. 
They were saying that they were getting sick. They were getting headaches, uh, dizzy, vomiting. But these are just like reports from citizens, right? This is not like experts. How are the officials supposed to know that there's really petroleum in the water? There's a technical trick for that, uh, it turns out. When there is petroleum in your tap water, your tap water tastes like fucking gasoline. It's kind of something that you notice. Yeah. Have you ever tasted gas? I, uh, you know. Like, have you ever, like, okay, well, I'm from Northwestern Ontario, as many <laughs> listeners know. That. As many listeners know. And there were, there, this is awful. I'm canceled on Twitter for sure for talking about huffing gas or sniffing gas or siphoning gas, which is where I'm going. Okay. Uh, the smell of gas is not that bad. It's not a, a smell I prefer. So I'll get that out of the way. It's a taste that is awful. So as you're wont to do in Northwestern Ontario, as a young lad who occasionally runs out of gas on the old snowmobile, you take a a hose and you siphon the gas out of another snowmobile into a little can and then you pour it in your snowmobile. And I've tasted gas doing that, Jesse. You know what you're tasting when you taste it. Not a subtle flavor. Not, not, you don't need a sophisticated palate to, to pick out the notes of petroleum. No, no, there's no hint of gas. Uh, there's not, it's not like a cherry note at the bottom end of the swallow. It's a, an awful, uh, intolerable taste and smell and, you know, catastrophic to, to a, a clean drinking water supply. I mean, it's, it's, un, it's unfathomable. Well, that is what the citizens of Iqaluit were saying on social media, to which uh, the authorities said, nope, we've inspected the water. It meets national standards. Drink up. That was their initial response. It took them until October 12th to get an engineering firm to test it again, who confirmed, yeah, there's petroleum in your drinking water. Maybe don't drink it. Maybe this is an emergency. And the news reports followed, and that's when I read about it in the Globe and Mail. What I want to talk about today is the news coverage that came after those national reports, after last week when we duly noted this. So after that first Globe and Mail story, the water gets tested again, and it's revealed that there are actually exceedingly high concentrations of fuel found in a water storage tank in a Iqaluit. You might think that that is cause for alarm. You might think that this is the point where national news stories like the one in the Golden Mail, we need more media attention. Like we've confirmed that this is a problem. There's a state of emergency. People are going down to the river to get clean drinking water. The river's going to freeze over. Who has the resources to buy bottled water? Who doesn't? Like this is bad. And this is one of these situations where you might think the national news media can actually help a small community by putting incredible pressure. Like obviously the officials have every reason to try to downplay this. Yeah. Let's not let them because this is serious. Here is... The headline that follows from the Globe and Mail. Officials confident no lasting damage to a Kalowitz water supply after contamination. That's the next thing I read in the Globe. Like, that's your headline? You're leading with what the officials told you, that there's no last, like, okay, we know that we told you there's a serious situation, but according to the officials, actually there's no lasting damage. So it seems like we can stop caring about this. Well, the actual article, as we know, the headlines in the article do not necessarily agree, and the headlines are not written by the people who write the articles. The article was written by Willow Fiddler and Kelly Grant. The actual article does not lead with, like, just parroting the talking points of officials. The article leads with quotes from a local mom who knows there's still a danger. Why? Because her tap water still smells like petroleum. 
So I don't know what happened, but the Globe and Mail's headline changed. Perhaps those writers said, get that fucking headline off of our article. I don't know. Uh, but the headline now reads, Iqaluit officials to conduct environmental assessment as water contaminants linger. That's a very different headline. That's not like just a little like, oh, we've tweaked it. We've like that is like contradictory of the first headline. That is a completely different angle for the story. There actually is a lingering contaminant in this drinking water. It's not just the Globe and Mail. This is the article that I read uh, on CTV's website. What the headline reads in part is fuel in water, not dangerous short term, expert says. This whole story is based on an expert, what an expert has to say about this. Now, experts on drinking water, sure, let's hear about that. But this expert, a University of Saskatchewan professor who's not in a Iqaluit, Stephen Siciliano, he's quoted close to the top saying the city did the right thing by telling its residents as soon as it found the smell. He doesn't live there and he's not even talking about his area of expertise. He's talking about whether the municipal reaction was like the right reaction. The officials actually didn't do the right thing because they knew about the smell a long time before they found, you know, confirmed the smell. In fact, they were like, pun intended, they were gaslighting uh, their, their residents who were saying they're like, why, why do we have a whole article where the, like this guy who doesn't even live there is giving like a review as to the municipal response being adequate? Well, this, and this is the common experience, right? Is that not just do we get journalism wrong when we helicopter in, get a hot take or two, and then helicopter out and then run some headlines and, and tell a story that we think we know. But when we as journalists and as publishers run to get the first voice we can find to speak on a thing. I'm not saying this is the case. I have no idea what happened to get this guy Siciliano, Siciliano. Uh, Siciliano. Mr. Siciliano from Saskatchewan to, to speak about the water crisis in Nunavut. But let me just say that we're always getting it wrong if we're not looking locally and talking locally and letting people on the ground uh, tell us what's happening. Look, he's a microbiologist and toxicologist. I don't know how many microbiologists and toxicologists live in Iqaluit. There's only 8,000 people there. By all means, quote this guy when it comes to like the science of this. But we've got him in here saying that the city shouldn't be blamed because they test for bacteria, not hydrocarbons. You know, why do I care about his opinion of, of who's to blame about this? And there's weird stuff. Like he says, look, if there's a little bit of petroleum, in, you know, it's like smoking one or two cigarettes a day. That's not like a pack a day. Like you can smoke, you you can drink that much petroleum. That, that you know, that's 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 where things got weird for me. <laughs> where it's like, uh, well, let's talk about what we do with that little bit of water. Like that's going to our children, it's going to our pets, it's going into our bodies. And I'm not really interested in how much petroleum is allowable uh, on a on a daily basis. <laughs> well, you know, there's like a government like level of rat feces that it's okay in a chocolate bar, you know? I think sure. that somebody should have just handed Steven Siciliano a little glass of this with that famous like, here, then you drink it. Well, that's the stunt, right? I love that political stunt, by the way, when, you know, you get Carolyn Bennett or some someone else walking into an indigenous community and uh, they've got the drinking water on the table. I mean, Saul Mamakwa uh, from Northern Ontario walks around with vials of, of drinking water from Neskatanga and other communities 
opportunities to show like, oh, yeah, you don't think it's that bad? Well, here, have a sip of this. Ten times out of ten, uh, people don't have a sip of it. In Shoal Lake, uh, Shoal Lake 40, when the water treatment plant uh, opened there, rest in peace to Stuart Red Sky. Uh, but when the water treatment plant opened there, you know, the big splashy picture on the front of the newspaper is everyone holding up a clean glass of drinking water from the facility itself. So, yeah, I mean, how much is allowable? How much can we tolerate? It is not really the conversation I'm interested in. I'm actually interested in what the hell's happening in Iqaluit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, immediate crisis stuff, like what the fuck? How did it happen? When is it over? For real over? And how do we make sure it doesn't happen again? What would be, I guess, like the most beneficial role that national media could play in a story like this? Well, I just think that we get caught in the cycle of the the flare-up, right? So we get the big headline. It's shocking. We can't believe what's going on. And I, I think, again, why local media is so important is we just have to continue to follow the story. We have to understand how we got there and how we're going to get out of the situation. But this is where we are right now uh, in journalism when we tell Indigenous stories. Um, there's the big flare-up. There's the headline, there's the blockade, there's the protest, and then there's nothing. So uh, just continuing to encourage people to follow the story. Uh, and if you're interested in the story, there is local news uh, in Iqaluit, in Nunavut. They have an incredible tradition of media and journalism in the territory. And so find those sources if you're interested. It's nitpicky, but there's other stuff in the reporting. You know, Vice and others quoted a couple of locals. It's great to, to quote locals. That's what we're talking about here. But a couple of the locals were quoted Sima Sahar Zarehi and her husband, Jeff Maurice. They're quoted in many stories and quite laudably. You know, Vice quotes that um, Jeff Maurice spent all day Wednesday traveling back and forth to a nearby river, collecting water and delivering it to his family and other community members. So here's like a local citizen, Jeff Maurice, doing good. And no doubt he was. But what's not mentioned is that Jeff Maurice is running for the legislature. (laughs) And the... Talking point that he's like going and getting water for citizens is like also on his like campaign materials. You son of a bitch, Jesse, you son of a bitch. I mean, I like, maybe mention that <laughs> his wife, Sima Sahara Zarehi, she is uh, the communications director for Kikatani Inuit Association. No doubt. Quote her. Quote her up and down. Look. But maybe say. I see where you're going with this. And sure. But I think the one thing you need to understand also is that, yes, often the people with the most resources in these communities are those that are employed by government or others that, you know, that can get shit done. And so I'm not surprised that uh, a couple of locals that have, you know, roles in the community, whether they're political or otherwise, um, are first to jump to solutions based sort of way of dealing with the problem. So it, it doesn't surprise me. It's it's common in indigenous communities that this is how it goes. I mean, it stops short of like, you know, a chief throwing buckets of KFC out of a helicopter window, vote for me. It's not that, <laughs> okay, not Jesse? That. Uh, it's not that. And by the way, uh, to John Kay, to John Kay or whoever else is looking to weaponize the indigenous voice from Canada land, chiefs have never thrown KFC by the bucket out of a helicopter. Is that a thing from a helicopter? No, it's, I, I'm joking, but it will be tomorrow when John Kay hears this. <laughs> imagine that. I just imagine the tweets. Oh yeah, well I heard. Yeah, yeah, I heard chiefs throw buckets. Ryan McMahon. Said. Ryan, that came from. I didn't say that. <laughs> 
This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. Ryan, we do not want people to miss things that they need to know about, so we, uh, we duly note them. You sure do. Ryan, what do you got? So Imaginative Film and Media Arts Festival starts this week. It's often referred to as Indian Christmas. Uh, <laughs> Non-Indigenous people shouldn't call it that. We, uh, inside the circle, call yeah, it Yeah, don't even tell me the things that I'm not allowed to say. Tell me more about this. Imaginative.org is where you can find uh, the program. Much of the offerings this year are available online. Dennis Goulet's film Night Raiders opened the festival last night. Night Raiders had the largest box office opening in Indigenous cinema history. What's it about? Uh, it's a sci-fi sort of post-apocalyptic epic about uh, Indigenous people rebuilding the world. And um, it opened the festival last night. Fantastic film. This burgeoning edge uh, in this new era of Indigenous film and cinema where genre is being uh, claimed by Indigenous people and sort of flipped on its head. So it's super interesting. Lots of that kind of work found throughout the festival this year. Again, a lot of it available online. So imaginative.org. Duly noted. All right, I got one. I think a lot of people saw what happened in Kamloops when Trudeau finally showed up. It was delicious. Like, I heard this first on the radio, so I didn't fully appreciate it. When Trudeau finally went to, to Kamloops and Chief Roseanne Casimir went on this, like, long, long speech about how hurtful it was that he was on vacation on Truth and Reconciliation, Remembrance Day, you kind of, like, know on the radio that he's, like, sitting beside her. But it's only through the video that you just watch him as she just, like, spoon feeds him shit, you know? Yeah. 
And he just has to sit there. And, and it's kind of what you've been waiting for years. It's like, who, who can hold this guy accountable? He just does and says, then he says he's sorry and he moves on. And he just has to sit there while she just reads him the riot act. What I'm duly noting is not that moment, though it really is worth watching the video of it. But what I'm duly noting is like, what's he going to say after that's all done? And, you know, he just like, he, he takes it and he's, you know, I regret, blah, blah, blah. But then he says something because a reporter asks him, you know, like, what are you actually doing? What are you doing about the records? Like, there are things that have been asked for that you have not done, like the, the government's records on residential schools. And he answers, All the federal records, all the records in possession of the federal government uh, have already been turned over to the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation in Winnipeg. Ryan, I want to duly note that that is bullshit. Nitu Garcha and John Aspiri of Global News caught it. They went and they spoke to the Truth and Reconciliation Center in Winnipeg who said, no, we do not have those records. That is not accurate. And there was a lot of focus on that very uncomfortable moment where Trudeau had to eat shit. But I feel like the follow-up, which is just another instance of him just trying to walk it back and trying to cover his ass and throwing out, like, here's what we're doing. And, and it's just not so. He says stuff that isn't true. And we don't pay enough attention to that. That's the part that needs to get duly noted. Uh, absolutely. And I, I will add, Ryan Moran, who was uh, formerly the executive director of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation, uh, before he left, tried uh, for years to land uh, those documents. This is an old conversation, again, in Indigenous communities, one we're familiar with. And to see this guy lie time and time and time again, I appreciate journalists that followed this story up and uh, duly noted. Ryan, you got another one for us? Last night was the Raptors season opening. You hate basketball, go Raptors. Duly noted. That's all I want from you. I'm supposed to say duly noted. You just, I know. You, duly noted. Thanks. Basketball, sports. Okay, I got one last one. It's a quick one. It's just uh, to note that La Presse has made a change to their style guide, uh, to their terminology. And uh, what they're going to be doing from now on is they're not going to be using the term pro-life. They're going to be using the term anti-abortion. These decisions matter when you decide what terminology, like pro-life is a PR term by people who do not want women to be allowed to get abortions. They don't want to be anti they want to be pro. And, and who could argue with pro-life? This is an old story. We know this. That was a term cooked up in some kind of like advertising firm working with working with anti-abortion people. Uh, and it was bought by the press and used for decades. So the decision, like, no, what you are, pro, who isn't pro-life? What does that actually tell us? Like the choice of descriptive language. What you are is a lobby group that is against abortion. We're going to call you that. I think it's the right thing to do. And I think it's worth pointing out when news organizations finally, eventually, uh, make the right call with their style guides and with terminology. Duly noted. Ryan, there are some loopy folks out there. I didn't, uh, I'm being really honest uh, when I say this, I didn't know that until very recently. There really are. There are some people out there with some wild ideas. Some of the people out there, a surprising number of them, believe that COVID-19 is a deep state conspiracy. They think that Bill Gates just wants to inject microchip syrup into your veins. They think that the media is using like paid crisis actors and fakery and make-believe to trick us all into getting vaccinated. And that in reality, ICU units are, are just sitting empty. 
people think that. So where, where is all this planning happening? Like, is it, where, where's the headquarters for the world domination planning? Is it in the former location of the pickle barrel at the Eaton Center? And we just don't know, like the windows are black and nothing's been going on there for 15 years. So they'd never suspected at the old pickle barrel location. Chuck E. Cheese, maybe. You know what? If you were to Google where's the planning taking place, I'm sure there are people who would be happy to answer uh, and give you a theory about that. I think a better question is, how can we in the media responsibly disabuse people of the of, of of these dangerous notions. How can we tell them the truth about what is actually that the ICU units are filled with people who are dying from COVID-19? And uh, with that in mind, I think you and I should should watch together a recent video from CBC News Edmonton. The headline here, it's real, it's dangerous, what it's like in an ICU ward. Patients that are being transferred into the intensive care unit are often those who have a deteriorating health condition to a point of a life-threatening status. These are the sickest of So the she's sick. standing, we're seeing footage uh, in the ICU Finally, unit. We will try to keep them out of ICU for as long as possible. So This is a bit something new. I, like, she's speaking in front of a patient whose back is turned to us. Like, I haven't seen much footage of actual people in ICU units. But there's like a like there's somebody in the bed in the yeah. hospital. Yeah. We have obviously equipment. Now we're actually looking at somebody. Does that look a little weird to you, Ryan? Uh, that is a robot or a mannequin of some sort. The the the, the, the patient is. COVID has turned their skin into plastic. They're using a shaky cam uh, so as to show like they're documenting. Well, that looks now that face is blurred. Yeah, some of the faces of patients are blurred, but some of them are like weirdo mannequin faces. <laughs> this mannequin has a Bible by his death and a notebook. I think that mannequin writes poetry. We know that some of the stories coming out of loss and grief are massive. Oh boy. Um, we know that people are still denying that COVID exists. Now we're looking at dirtbags blocking access to yeah, hospitals. Here's like anti vaxxers looking like jerks. It's real, it's dangerous, and I hope people get vaccinated. Okay. <sighs> well. What the fuck was that? Yeah. I mean, look, where do I get my information about how nurses and doctors are doing locally in hospitals from them? We can argue about the validity or, or how important it is that doctors are big on Twitter or whatever. A lot of pe- This pisses a lot of people off. I think it's important that doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners come online and say, I just got done a 16-hour shift and here's what happened. To me, it's been invaluable for me as a citizen to learn about the implications of this virus and, and what happens. But I don't know what the fuck this was supposed to do. I, I, I do. Can I explain it? Yes, please. Okay. Problem. We want to show the public the horrors of the ICU unit so that we can put to bed the stupid myth that there's nobody dying from COVID. But we can't actually take our cameras into an ICU unit for privacy reasons. Solution, said some genius. There are medical training facilities where people recreate ICUs using mannequins. We can give people an idea of the ICU unit by filming those. I I get why they did it, but then they forgot to actually say the part where they say, by the way, by the way, this is not a real ICU unit. These are mannequins used for training purposes. They didn't initially say that part. 
they should have said it up front. It should have been presented as such because now this gets used as, was oh, there a but there's 300 mannequins in the ICU. I saw it on the news. Frank McVitie tweeting, look very closely. He, I mean, like, look, first of all, if you actually watch the whole thing, nobody's trying to fool you. They are very obviously mannequins. By the way, Frank McVitie's uh, great, great uncle was Columbo. <laughs> <laughs> These people are not honest, you're arming them with ammo, and they take a screen grab of where the mannequin is in the background, and they say to their large Twitter followings, look very closely at this supposed ICU patient. It's a mannequin. The media is lying to you. It's fraud. All of these assholes tweet after tweet, and it's CBC. So these conspiracy theorists, they think like, oh, the public broadcaster, of course, is going to like spread the deep state lie. This is such bad news judgment. This is like, this is making the work of liars easy. It is so irresponsible. And it got to a point where it made like, this is the kind of thing that made the rounds outside of Canada. Yeah. You know, this is, this will spread like wildfire and, and to the point where Reuters had to get involved. Reuters has like a fact check desk, fact check, CBC Edmonton news report featuring a mannequin was filmed at a training facility, not in a hospital intensive care unit. It gets worse. Like CBC then reused the footage as B-roll on a future report, and they were mixing real ICU footage where they had to blur people's faces with the bullshit mannequin footage. Like the viewer has no way of knowing in either of these reports. So then they come on like over 10 days later with a, a little editor's note, which is actually like even hard to find, even if you're looking at the page. Editor's note, October 11th. Some of the images in this video are from inside hospitals and as such are identified as being provided by AHS. The other clinical footage, including video of mannequins in beds, was recorded by CBC Edmonton in September 2021 at training facilities where students learn using realistic hospital simulations. Maybe we should have known that beforehand. Put it in the lower third. The woman from the actual training facility, I forget her name, my apologies, could have said, we are here in the training facility where we prepare fledgling nurses and doctors to come in in emergency situations because soon they will be on the front lines where in real hospitals this is going on. She could have done it. Maybe even in the original CBC Edmonton report, maybe the anchor said so. I don't know, because the part that gets clipped and put on the internet doesn't include that part. But this is why I don't think you should even fuck with mannequins, like because people take things out of context and even the CBC had it in a context where there's there was no way of knowing. You don't fuck with mannequins when you're going to use actual footage of real ICUs and emergency rooms. Like you, do, you don't mix those things because it looks like you're trying to make the thing that's not it look like it. And that's what this was. Now, look, I want to say this. Like stand-up comedy. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. I'm going somewhere. Give me 16 seconds. I'm not supposed to shit on other comics publicly. I'm not supposed to say, this person sucks, this person's yeah. good, that joke sucks, this joke's good. It's not what we do. There's a there's a circle of us. There's only a few of us we're supposed to support and stay together. And if we hate it, we just don't say it publicly. They're not going to make it anyway. In journalism, there's the same thing. You are not it's, – it's against the, the circle of hope that is journalism. Have you met me? I, well, this is why sometimes I'm mad at you is sometimes you go too hard in the fucking paint at journalists <laughs> that are trying really hard. And in this case, when I saw this in the show notes for today, I was like, oh, fuck. This is the one where I can't yeah. not – 
pile on and say this was awful. Look, I don't want to be mean because, like, there might be some 20-year-old at CBC Edmonton who was, like, given, like, three minutes to go and find some B-roll. And people always think that we're, like, journalists and reporters are malicious or they're in the in the tank for this side or not. Usually when something bad happens, it's because, you know what, there are 15,000 less of us than there were 15 years ago. And the deadlines are the same. You know, the news broadcasts are just as long. And somebody didn't have proper oversight. There was just a missing filter. I'm sorry for that person. And whoever, like, like the fact that they reused it as B-roll. Because, like, you know what? You don't have a lot of B-roll of ICUs. No. And how many fucking shots of, like, when you're doing COVID coverage every night and you're using the same B-roll of, like, here's a vial. Here's a, a little 3D graphic of a, of a nasty-looking coronavirus sphere. You're like, oh, good, some ICU B-roll. And then, like... Somehow the mannequin shit got reused. I feel for that person. It's not their fault necessarily. But my God, people, my God, like, I don't know what to say about this. This this should have never seen the light of day. And actually in my in my notes in prepping for the episode today, I this was my out was like shrinking newsrooms, deadlines remaining the same. You have to feel for people that make mistakes and mistakes will happen. This was not a mistake. This was a choice. And this is bad Bad, bad, because I personally believe and know that COVID is real, that it kills people, and that there is a segment of our population that is disproportionately affected by it and end up in hospital uh, beds. And I know that that has real effects on people getting surgeries and other things. This is the whole thing we're trying to prevent. I also know that this piece has found the dark web and it has found the Reddit channels of assholes that want to shut down hospitals and that think journalism is bullshit and that think there is a deep state cover up and thinks that Bill Gates is our big white daddy. Like this just put bullets in the gun and we can't afford to do this anymore. No, the stakes are so high. Like it's just there's a teeny like it's all it's never malice. It's always oversight. You know, CBC had a headline: Ryerson rolls out new COVID nineteen policy that limits access to university activities for unvaccinated. That is factually correct, right? Like yes, Ryerson is limiting what you can do if you didn't get the vaccinated, but like. Why present that as a story about what you can't do because Ryerson's cracking down? Like, what? Like, how about Ryerson protects the health of its students? Like, these are choices. It's a choice whether you call it pro-life or anti-abortion, whether you're pro-safety or anti-rights. These are choices. And, like, I, I don't think that whoever wrote that headline is in the tank for the anti-vaxxers. It's just, it's just a carelessness and a lack of thoughtfulness that we can't really afford right now. And like editorially, I just think like where we are right now in the education of people in communities that are vaccine hesitant or are flat out anti-vax or people that are on the fence about whether they want this at all or not, you know, we have to continue to use facts and data and the science that is in front of us, because it does evolve. And our understanding of these vaccines evolves. Our understanding of the virus itself has evolved from the beginning. And we have to continue to put this information in front of people in a clear way 
<laughs> that fucking doesn't use mannequins or animation or fucking musical theater. Right. Like, let's not do this. I don't want to see COVID the musical uh, going to fuckballs Alberta. Like, I don't. Let's not do this. We now cut to a real live ICU and then it's puppets. And then it's, <laughs> it's, it's uh, I am COVID. I it's, am COVID and I am real. <laughs> That's your shortcuts. Thank you. You can support us uh, for doing more of this. We need you to. We're going to be mounting a puppet show uh, very soon should we reach our next goal. Marionettes, like in, in Being John Malkovich. Oh, old-timey wooden ones. Canadaland.com slash join. We need your support this crowdfunding month. Uh, we will be talking a lot about it, and then we really don't talk about it much. So please, this is when we need it, and we want to bring you Canada Land back. Go do it now. Click on the link in the show notes. That's another way you can do it. You're just going to skim past the musical theater thing and just keep doing the credits? like We're on Twitter at Canada Land. I can be emailed at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything that you send me. Ryan, where can people find you? At RM Comedy on Instagram and Twitter. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. Once again, if you like what we do, please support us. CanadaLand.com slash join. Can you give us in song uh, where people can support Canada Land? Yeah. You can support Canada Land at canadaland.com slash join jazz hands. That was actually really good. That was awful. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.